Welcome to Book Strong Podcast, hosted by my man, Matthew Christie. And welcome back to the Book Strong Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 1 with Dr. Brian Mann. We talk about stress, the impact it has on our bodies in every facet. We base this conversation around the book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, written by Dr. Robert Shapolsky at Stanford University. Concerning the book, it's a very informative book, the most informative book I've read on the nervous system and stress as a whole. Not a hard read, but a long read. So if you're into this stuff, if you like the episode, I highly recommend getting the book. About our guest, Dr. Mann, I'm very grateful to have him on the show, Dr. Brian Mann, is able to go from talking about the HPS axis, correction, HPA axis, notice that late when I was editing, oh well, into mental health issues in his sport, in people he loves, and he does it seamlessly, and I'm very grateful for him being able to open up on this show. So without further ado, here is Dr. Mann. All right. All right, I'm here with Dr. Mann at Miami University. Dr. Mann, can you introduce yourself? Well, I, University of Miami. Miami University is in Ohio. Uh, so yeah, uh, Brian Mann, I've been in strength and conditioning since uh, 1998, I believe. Um, so I've been around the block for a while. You know, uh, I started in, uh, you know, as a re- resistance training as a kid and was in the right place at the right time to get my first volunteer position. Uh, then I was in the right place at the right time to get my next position and, and, and every position uh, thus for, you know, since then. Um, coaching stops are at uh, Missouri State, Arizona State, University of Tulsa, University of Missouri, and uh, now uh, University of Miami. I'm not ac- actively coaching, but I do a, a lot of sports science work over there with the uh, with the athletes. Um, but that's uh, you know that that's my my background and uh, you know as far as the uh, the coaching side of things goes. Uh, degrees, uh, PhD, and uh, second master's University of Missouri, uh, undergraduate and first master's uh, at Missouri State University, and. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I really don't know what else to to go in about that. Uh, powerlifting, uh, wrote the book on that. Uh, not like I started the sport, but I mean, if you go to Barnes and Noble, powerlifting is a book I wrote. Uh, written the book on the APRE, and I've written uh, a few books and got a couple of courses on uh, velocity-based training. Yeah. That's great. So today we're talking about uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, the book written by Robert Sapolsky. Yeah. Um, So we're going to the goal is to use the information in that book and how it applies to a strength and conditioning setting, how it applies to exercise physiology. So getting into that in the perspective of strength and conditioning, what is stress? Well, stress is it it doesn't even have to be just a a strength conditioning. You know, a a stressor is anything that activates the HPA axis, the uh, Hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. Uh, so that's, you know, it, it could be any sort of thing. It's going to activate that, but it, it will be to a different intensity. Uh, but we also need to make sure that we don't think that of stress is all bad. 
you know, because stress is required to force adaptation. You know, if stress is progressive overload, stress is specificity in the in the said principle. You know, stress is required for additional adaptations, but it's, you know, just like with anything, you've got to have a balance. Uh, you know, some of the things that we consume every day, like water. Well, the, if you drink too much water, that's a poison. Uh, causes hyponatremia, uh, leading to waterlog uh, condition and uh, potentially death. Uh, you know, salt, salt can kill you. Um, you know, colloidal silver that some people use as an antiseptic will turn you blue and kill you. Uh, so just like anything, it's all about the dosage and finding the optimal dosage. <clears throat> now, we've got to make sure that we are um, ensuring that we're staying within our individual levels of stress. Uh, some people can handle more stress than others. Uh, just by the way that they're wired. Uh, it, it's individual variation and some people can handle less and you just have to figure out what what is the level that each person can adapt to. Um, and that's also going to change because again, stress is systemic. We don't have a stress bank for training, a stress bank for practice, a stress bank for academics, a stress bank for relationships, a stress bank for family crap, stress bank for friends. We don't We don't have those. We have one bank account. And we just have to make sure that we are um, essentially balancing out that bank account, that we're not putting too much stress uh, on the athlete whenever, you know, there's, a, especially at different times, uh, because we, we can account for some things. We can't account for everything, but we can account for some things like, you know, academic stresses or a, uh, <clears throat> a, a pissed off coach during a practice. Uh, and those, sorry about that, uh, probably, should have had a better word choice. I haven't, this is my first dose of caffeine for the day. So, uh, you know, Scott would be disappointed, but you know, it is what it is. It's 10 AM and I'm having my first round. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's what we, we get to it. You know, there, it's kind of like no pressure, no diamond, mm -hmm. you know, there's gotta be pressure for a diamond, but if you give too much heat and pressure, what happens to the diamond or not enough heat and pressure, what happens to the, you know, the carbon that becomes the diamond. Yeah, all things are required and in, in, in the right ratios and at the right times. And it's whenever we give too much too soon or not enough or, you know, it, it, you just got this range of optimal and you've got to get it down that uh, get, you know, put everything that you can in that optimal pipe. And uh, if there's too much, it's going to overflow and that overflowing leads to overtraining. One of the. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book is about stress leading to damage. And the book goes in depth on damage that sympathetic overactivation will cause. Yeah. But it, it says, not so much that the stress response runs out, but rather with sufficient activation that the stress response can become more damaging than the stress itself. So as an exercise physiologist or as a strength coach, what are the ways you see your athletes have an overactive stress response where they're actually damaging themselves. How does that manifest? Well, that's just a, a total systematic uh, systemic stress, right? So uh, this leads into the, the things like that academic stress paper, uh, the effects of academic stress on illness and injuries in Division One football, that whenever you experience too great of a stress, 
Uh, well, Celier did oversimplify things, and I think Sapolsky did a much better job with it, but Sapolsky had a lot to work with, where Celier just was watching some rats and, um, you know, figured the, the stuff out on his own. Um, that, uh, you know, you, you end up in that exhaustion phase of the general adaptation syndrome curve. Uh, and, and that's it. Uh, and what is that exhaustion phase? Well, it could be overtrained so that you'd see a decrease in speed, power, and results. It could be uh, injury, and it could be illness. You know, your body is going to get is going to find a way to get the rest that it needs and the recovery that it needs. Uh, and is it through making you sick? Is it through making you hurt? Or is it through just making your results go to hell, or you end up feeling like quitting the the activity altogether? You know, that is the question that that isn't known. Um, and, you know, it, it's true that it isn't the stressor that's causing anything. It, it's the total amount of stress as it's systemic. You know, going back to that academic stress paper and even looking at some of the work by Trent Petrie is that uh, it wasn't necessarily the sport, but it was the the total or it was the way that that individual dealt with the stress so that they couldn't mitigate it. Uh, so if you look at uh, Petrie, uh, and I'm probably saying his last name completely wrong, uh, but uh, it looks like his first name's Trent, so I think I can say that. But P-E-T-R-I-E, uh, I believe he's at University of North Texas. Uh, Try to have some conversations with him. I've reached out to him, and I have not been successful. So, you know, if uh, take that for what it's worth. Uh, meaning that if you're trying to reach out to him for a podcast, I don't know if that would uh, that would actually happen or not. But, um, but Petrie, you know, he had a lot with the mitigating effects of social support. Right. So that if somebody had came from a good family uh, that they could talk to, um, the stressor went away. Right. And you, know, you think about it. If you have had a stressful situation and you're dealing with it, but you don't really know how to deal with it, whenever you talk with uh, somebody who's very, very trusted, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's uh, just a close friend you aren't as stressed out about it. It's not sitting there lingering on top of you. You're not ruminating about it. And realize that whenever you're ruminating, you are causing a, that stress response to stay there. And whenever you have sufficiently dealt with it, you can move on. And also having that good family uh, support system also provides a safety net so that you know if uh, everything, uh, how, how do I say, it? I'm having a struggling of how to explain this and you know, G or uh, all rated terms. Um, I don't want to say it that way. Have you ever seen when you're doing your studies in Missouri, so you did it with the football team? Yeah. Was there, and this is only anecdotally because I'm not sure how you could really put this into uh, scientific wording. But is the team aspect help these athletes through training camp or through stress of school or just them being able to be in a team environment versus any other experience where people might not have that kind of dynamic? Well, that that's an interesting question, and, and I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that's going to be very, very individual, and it is going to be dependent on the situation. Uh, for some people that whenever there are, you know, just having been around teams for a long time, whenever you have got that tight knit team where nothing can break them apart, 
then absolutely people are relying on each other in training camp and that actually makes it mitigate some of the stress and it makes them stronger overall. Uh, I've also been a part of the teams where uh, it, they might have been a, a bunch of extremely talented individuals, but uh, you know they would be individuals who would say, well, there's no time uh, I in team, but there sure as hell is ME. Uh, you know, that whenever we've had those guys, nah, man, uh, the training camp would, didn't bring anybody together. Uh, and I don't think there was mitigation of stress. I think it was escalated stress. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it, it's really dependent on the organization, the, uh, the, the team culture, uh, I think is going to, to play a massive, massive part of that. If it's a mitigation of stress or not, uh, the, the thing that I was trying to, to get to before was that, um, yeah, that the uh, mitigation of stress from the familial standpoint and from the friend standpoint that, you know, if you uh, if you talk about the stressor, it's gone, you're no longer ruminating on it. Um, but if you don't have that, then, uh, you know, we've all had instances where we think three hours later, it's like, that's what I should have said to that SOB. Well, you that stress response is staying on all the time. So if that individual does not have the ability to process through that stressor it is just present 24 hours a day and that's going to be a really bad thing because you know why zebras don't get ulcers for those who haven't read the book is that hey whenever there's no lion there's no stress and whenever there is lion there is a stress their negative feedback loop which puts you back towards home you know allostasis you know away from that sympathetic energy uh, is it, far better than ours because they don't have that prefrontal cortex that allows them to think and ruminate on stuff. It's that they're living in the moment. And, uh, and that's really why I think the practice of mindfulness helps so much for the mitigation of stress for so many individuals is because that is teaching you to be in the moment, at least for a little while to where you can kind of reset and uh, eliminate some of those additional stressors that are not, uh, I'm not gonna say that they're not real, but they are not ever present. You're ruminating about something that you don't need to be worrying about at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So, like you said, for some people, this is talking about it. And once you talk about it, it's processed. But without being able to let it out, they find it it ruminates. And then that's the sympathetic response that. Yeah, yeah you continues. keep ruminating on it and it just continues. Yeah, you think about any time that think about one of the worst mistakes you've ever made. And yeah. whenever you start thinking about it, you probably get this white feeling in the pit of your stomach, or maybe some people it's up in their throat. That is, under, you've undergone the physiological stress response. It, was it as intense, intense as it was the first time? No. But hey, uh, water, drops of water will break through rock with time. Just like that, that low level of stress that is ever present is going to eventually facilitate overtraining or injury. Mm-hmm. My biggest questions when it comes to overtraining and stress is I, and this is anecdotal, like everything I know, um, people that I know who deal with serious family trauma, um, loss of a close relative, they find peace in the gym and going really every day and pushing themselves to the limit. So there's, to me, there has to be some kind of balance where the gym is an outlet, a way for them to express their pain without 
saying it. So we said before, you say it, and that's your way of getting through it. But I've seen people who can't even talk about this kind of stuff, but you know that they're just, people say, battling demons in the weight room. So then I wonder, at what point is their stress that they're putting on their body physically helping their mental turmoil? And how do you categorize that? How do you understand that? And how are they not making their situation worse, but in some cases much better? Well, honestly, they're not. Um, They're not making it better. They're not battling through it. What they're doing is mitigating what they have at that point in time Mm -hmm. and letting a little bit of pressure off at that point in time through that physical uh, stress relief as from exercise. Because we do know that exercise does enhance stress. But if you never deal with the underlying symptoms, Mm -hmm. if you never deal with what is causing that stress, and that is never processed, it is never gone. I actually had to include this in the, my recent uh, update of powerlifting uh, because I've lost many, many friends to suicide uh, in the powerlifting community because they have gone in to battle their demons and they were found ways to live and survive as long as they could push the heavy weights. But your body is going to fail at some point. And if you never deal with that stress, what happens when you don't have that outlet? And for too many of my friends, it was either return to drugs and overdose, mm-hmm. or it was uh, that they could no longer handle the stresses of society and they, they were done and they ended it themselves. So I don't think that this, this physical exercise, is it a way to relieve some stress? Absolutely. But that demon is there mm-hmm. and it is waiting. And if you don't take care of that demon, he's going to fucking kill you. And um, I am a huge believer in therapy. Uh, I, you know, in, in the book, I actually had the, uh, the, there was at the North American Alliance for Mental Illness uh, actually approve my statements uh, that I, I had in that book about that you, you still need to seek treatment. You still need to seek counseling. This still needs to be processed. This battling your demons in the gym is a temporary thing thing. It's putting a band-aid on a gunshot wound. It slowed the blood, but it didn't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. It's still bleeding. You're going to die. You're just going to die more slowly. You have to take care of your mental health. And uh, the people who are battling their demons in the gym day in and day out, if you could battle it and be gone, it wouldn't be battling day in and day out. That's fucking stupid. It would be over. It would be over. I'm sorry about the F-bomb there, but I'm extremely passionate about. And I think that too many people uh, are just going to use that outlet and they're going to use it for a while just to put it off, to defer it, to not have to look in the devil's mouth again. Mm -hmm. But he's still there. And until you deal with that stressor, until you deal with that trauma, it's never going away. And I'm somebody who who did that. I sought refuge in the weight room. And uh, for many years, as I was, you know, gaining in strength, in my physical strength, I, I was uh, effectively dealing with my demons. And it wasn't until I was injured and had to retire that I noticed that I'm either going to happen to be like all of my friends or I need help. And I went and I sought help. Uh, so, yeah, those demons, yeah, you know, I, I get it that a lot of people are looking at that, but man, 
you know, they're like, oh, I'm just going to exercise it away. Nah, man, you're just taking the, you're just taking a little bit of pressure off. Mm. You're just taking some pressure off. That demon hasn't gone anywhere. Wow. This next question, you seems like you pretty well sufficiently just covered it, but I just want to clarify. Um, I've been recently be getting, been getting into, um, and I don't want to understate what you just said. That was profoundly deep, and I appreciate that. But when um, I've just been getting into some uh, GPP recently, trying mm-hmm. to understand that better. So when you look at someone who has a higher GPP, so they have this higher volume and ability to train, or is that somebody who is able to deal with stress better looking at stress as obviously when they're training, they have the ability to handle that stress and, and recover better or not recover better, but train more. But do they have the ability to handle outside stressors better as well? I don't think so. Um, quite candidly, I, you know, it's just that this is my opinion Uh, and and other people might have uh, empirical evidence otherwise. Uh, but what I think it is, is it simply gets back to kind of like, you know, fitness level and calorie burning. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're training at 60% VO2 max, and let's say your VO2 max is 30, well, that means that you can train at, uh, oh God, I, what did I say, 60%? So that would 60. be 18 mils per kg. So that's about five mets, right? So what is that like fucking walking uh, mm-hmm. versus somebody who has got a, uh, let's just double it. So 60 uh, VO2. And then 60% of that would be 36, right? And then that would be around, that would just be over a little over 10 mets. So mm. you could see that you're able to handle a higher dosage of exercise. So it's just that, uh, that it's that the 60% is of that higher number because they're more fit. So that's why they are training harder. They're not actually training harder in a relative sense. Mm. They're just training what they can, uh, what they can do. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's the same. It's the same impact on the body. Right. That makes sense. Kind of moving away from the stress response. Yeah. Uh, can you can you talk about can you talk about VBT uh, and if you've ever used that uh, or you use that on much of your research and you you know a lot about that. Is there a way to measure VBT and stress or when somebody has hit their threshold of training? Well, yeah, there's a, a few things that you could do with it uh, as a marker of, uh, excuse me, monitoring. And it might not be the the best. And it, it's not the best because whenever you receive feedback, you're going to alter your strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I'm saying it, it might not be the best. But, you know, you can look at tracking somebody's uh, velocity predicted 1RM from week to week. And you know that if it is decreasing, that, hey, you know, we're, we're probably, you know, shifting towards overreaching, potentially overtraining. Uh, you could look at um, embedding, you know, so that's a way to embed, right? So that you're not having to do additional touch points because I really don't like doing additional touch points any longer. Uh, the athletes are going to start revolting. Uh, they're they're going to feel like lab rats, not humans. So, you know, I, I look to embed things. Uh, and uh, another aspect that I do and have done and, and looked at in the past is um, like I would have uh, squat jumps or something like that, jump squats, and uh, we'd have it on a controlled depth, you know, going down to a box and looking at their peak velocity uh, and peak power. 
and, and tracking that from week to week. And then if they're, you know, if we're seeing a decline there, well, we probably need to alter training because, you know, your velocity is a function of rate coding and rate coding is a function of the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. And if those things are jacked up, you know, that that's you know, that's what heart rate variability is. It's an examination mm -hmm. of the peripheral nervous system. A lot of people say central, but I don't understand how they could think it's central. Uh, heart rate variability is controlled by the vagus nerve, right? Okay. Well, the vagus nerve is a cranial nerve. The cranial nerves are not central. These are peripheral. So we're looking at the peripheral nervous system. If, uh, if somebody was to actually look at the central nervous system, they'd be examining brain waves through things like DC potential. So how did I get there? I don't remember. I, I'm sure that I had a bridge uh, between the two, but- It was uh, measuring stress through- Oh, yeah, yeah, DBT. yeah. So uh, I, I think that there are far better ways to do it through you know heart rate variability, heartbeat variability, DC right. potential, potentially questionnaires if you've got great relationships with your athletes uh, or things like heart rate recovery. Uh, I don't necessarily know if VBT would be the best way to do it, the most precise. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you might lose some fidelity, but it's definitely doable. And uh, and especially if you're embedding it, it, it would be worthwhile. Uh, I just don't know if it would be the most accurate. So what I'm saying is if you have heart rate variability and you've got VBT, I would trust the heart rate variability over the VBT. And okay. heart rate variability is the difference in um heart rate throughout the day right so no nah, not throughout the day okay so what we're actually looking at is uh typically they're going to be doing anywhere from uh 15 seconds God, maybe it's 30 seconds to like five minutes 10 minutes mm -hmm. and uh, you're looking at the differences in that time period now it depends on the device that you're using some are actually looking at heartbeat variability versus heart rate variability uh, and I'm, I, I might have been making up my own terms there. I'm not sure. But uh, with what I'm referring to as heart rate variability actually is analyzing the ECG, right? Looking at the QRS curve and mm -hmm. that there's different lengths and different spacings. And all of those things mean something. If you, you ask me what, I'll tell you to go talk to Chris Morris or read his dissertation. Uh, it, it's in the University of Kentucky repository. Uh, I read it years ago and I don't remember. Uh, but I know that he did a, a very, very fantastic job of demystifying it for me. Um, and then there's others that do heartbeat variability. And heartbeat variability is just the, the root mean square of the standard deviation of the R to R interval, which is the beat. And then that will give you some insight into the status because, you know, we got to realize that. Uh, and I got this from Fergus Connolly. Uh, I haven't read the book, but he, he's got a book uh, that was from 15th century China on, uh, I think it's called like pulse diagnostics. And in the book, in the 15th century, in the 14 freaking hundreds, they were saying, if your pulse is right as rain on a hot, uh, on a tin roof, you'll be dead in three days. So, you know, that's just showing that even back then, even uh, I'm not that great at math, but I think that 600 years ago, they knew that your heart beats when it needs to, not like a metronome. And if it's beating like a metronome, that means you're holding on for dear life. And the next little thing that comes along could kill you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a much more sensitive means. And I also think that if you don't have the ability to do either one of those, right, heart rate or heartbeat because of logistics, something that I've played around with a little bit that uh, I think holds promise, I'm not sure, is uh, my last few, last semester, last few weeks of working with uh, 
soccer team, I started uh, working with the coach that as soon as warm-up was over, we had a two-minute water break, right? So what do we get? Well, we get a heart rate during the warm-up to look at and investigate. And then a two-minute water break, if we drop a marker immediately whenever it's done, drop a marker at one minute, drop a marker at two minutes, we see heart rate recovery. And that heart rate recovery very well might be a very important and uh, embeddable uh, metric for those you who are doing heart rate anyways. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it takes a little bit of work on the front end. You've got to be there to be able to drop the markers uh, or you need to go back and, and do it that way through the software. Uh, this was also with a Polar Team 2 system. I wouldn't know how to do it with a pro or anything else. Mm -hmm. Right. I just know the uh, the system that I was using that I was playing around with at that time. That God, that's been actually a decade ago whenever I was doing that. Um, but it, it it showed uh, some. We only had four people with uh, the uh, fuck what's the name. Um, we got it here. Catapult. We only had like four people with catapult sensors on, but their velocities matched that. Their peak velocity on the days whenever their heart rate variability was poor. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry, variability, heart rate recovery was poor. They were slower. Mm -hmm. And on the days whenever they had good heart rate recovery, they were faster. And again, that's for people that's anecdotal, but for me, it makes enough sense to right. where I think it's worthwhile to, to investigate this. Mm -hmm. And as a coach who might not have the resources to have a study, it's definitely a good marker getting getting samples of people with that polar or we, we use polar here and just to, you know, chart over time to see how they're feeling throughout the season, when to lay off or when to t let the coach know something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at the questionnaire spe specifically on uh, markers of mood and vigor, right. Uh, where does your, where does your mood come from? Let me ask you this. Um, it's a good question. I would think your mood is a result of your ability to deal with stress. Um, how you're you're getting there. Okay, so your ability to deal with stress and how you're feeling at that moment in time. And where does your feelings and everything come from? Well, you've been through that day. And where where do you process all that? Mm, nervous system it's specifically your brain and if dc potential is a marker of central nervous system activity mm -hmm. what might be a proxy for central nervous system activity markers of mo mood and vigor mm-hmm so it's a way that I think is a, uh, and you know, if you look at the work from Andy Fry and his wife, uh, Mary uh, Fry, dealing with overtraining, they've always found that the questionnaires were, were good, but specifically to track mood and vigor. Well, to me, it seems that mood and vigor is a marker of your brain waves and your brain waves are DC potential mm -hmm. and DC potential is central nervous system. So I think that, you know, even if all you have is questionnaires that, as long as you are, you absolutely look at the total score too, mm -hmm. but really keep, keep an eye on that mood and vigor, those markers. Mm -hmm. The other stuff could be red herrings. I'm right. afraid. I'm not sure. I just, that that's gut. It's kind of like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Uh, but the mood and vigor, it's always been, uh, been right on for me. And you would have to do mood and vigor relative to that person. Correct. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah you have to look at the individual person, you know, because yeah. yeah, if we think back to uh, yeah, all I know is kids TV shows right now. So, I mean, if we're looking at Winnie the Pooh, you know, Tigger, his mood and vigor is always going to be really always high. Up. Always. Up. Yeah. So he's always going to be like a nine. So if that that dude's like an eight point five, that's that's meaning something huge. Well, what about mm-hmm. Eeyore? If Eeyore, Eeyore is always a two. So mm-hmm. if he goes down to if he's up at a three, which is well below what we would think of as a positive threshold, that's a holy shit. He's having a good day. Yeah. Right. Uh, versus, you know, Tigger, who if he was a three, you know, that he's uh, yeah, on death's door. Mm. So, you know, you, you've got to look at the individual responses for things that are subjective, uh, like questionnaires, RPEs, et cetera. Uh, you can't just give a, uh, a blanket RPE. Now, you, you can if you're looking at a team. It's mm-hmm. like on average, how how hard do I think this is going to be for a team workout? Well, I think it's going to be a seven, mm-hmm. and then the mean will probably come out to about that. But uh, you, but for the individual response, of course, you need to look at the individual variation. Got it. Uh, moving moving away from stress a little bit. Uh, this is a question I ask a lot of my everyone I interview. Uh, who's the best strength coach you've ever had? or best workout partner or someone who's you've learned the most from, or just, I look at it as, I look at a coach as someone who mentors me and pushes me to be a better person, a better man. Who has that been for you? Ooh, man, that's, that's going to be tough, uh, man. So as far as strength and conditioning, the, the coach that I've worked for that I learned the most from in the area of actually resistance training would have been Joe Ken whenever I was out at Arizona State. Mm. Uh, you know, looking at the different processes and the way that he looked at and organized training, uh, it, it was a very, very good experience for me at that, especially at that point in my career. And I was I he doing things. Was he doing the tier system back then too? Brother, there's no point in time when he wasn't doing the tier system. <laughs> I'm trying to get him on the show to talk about it. So yeah, no, he. Uh, whenever I did it, it, that book came out that fall. Like I did it in the summer, okay. and the book came out in the fall. So yeah, he was he was deep into it at, at that point in time, and, and the book that we looked through as interns was far thicker than the book that was published. So you know, uh, th- there's a lot more a uh, lot more there. So you know, mm-hmm. you you always follow him to to get some of that information, and then honestly, if you look at a lot of the work by uh, Mark Peterson and Brent Alvar. Uh, that that it is, uh, yeah, you could see uh, Joe Ken's hands all over it. Uh, and why? Well, who was at Arizona State while Joe Ken was a strength coach? Well, Matt Ray. Of course, you're going to see mm, Joe Ken's right. work all over Matt Ray, Mark Peterson, Steve Ball, Brent Alvar, all of those individuals. So you know you, you'll you'll see that from their uh, their research. You can you can smell you know the differences in percentages and the way that sets are waived and things like that. You, you know, you'll you'll see that uh, from their work. Uh, from a dealing with people standpoint, it's it's Pat Ivy. Um, you know, Pat was a, a hotel restaurant management major, and he he told everybody it's like I I know how to deal with people. Uh, you know, I've got people that will help me with the the programming aspect, and that that was you know, a lot of what I did and Josh Stoner were doing. And then, uh, Ryan Jackson, whenever I transitioned over into academia. Um, but the, you know, Pat was that, that how he dealt with people, uh, was, was amazing. Uh, how to, you know, be a better professional, uh, right now and how to really examine things, uh, as a researcher, it's Joe Signorelli. 
uh, who's a name that I'm sure none of your listeners will know. Most of his work is with Parkinson's and aging. But this dude is relentless. And uh, he has got a tireless work ethic in whenever I bring a question. I have, this is going to sound extremely arrogant, but I have never worked with an individual that if I had a question about anything, I could go to them and ask and they would know the answer. Never had that before. Now, I've had people that'll call. You know, of course, I've got, you know, Thomas Walensky, Buddy Morris, Cal Dietz, uh, Joe Ken, and, and other people like that that I could call up. But I never had somebody that I worked with that actually made me so much better that I uh, I am a better professional. Uh, I'm a better sports scientist as a result of working with Joe Signorelli. And then as a man, that, that one's tough. And, um, and in all candor, uh, I grew up in a broken home and I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, I did mm. not have good advice. I did not have a good example. I know how to shoot at somebody uh, for doing something. I know how to hit somebody with a gun for doing something, mm. which I don't do. I, I refuse to. Um, but as far as how to be a man, I'm, I'm figuring that out. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, as Will Hogue said in his, his in one of his songs, you know, I, the truth is I'm a boy still trying to be a man. And uh, whenever I figure that out, I'll let you know. Yeah, I, I appreciate your, your humility and I'm, it certainly takes a man to be able to admit something like that as well. Could you talk about any research you're doing now or what you're currently trying to work on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we recently have put out a couple of papers that I think are huge for strength and conditioning. Uh, the uh, the long jump paper that is how can you convert uh, long jump distance and body mass into a uh, power score, and it works great for male athletes. Uh, whenever we tried to do it with the students over here, uh, the women didn't so much do it so hot and it might, you know, it could mm -hmm. definitely be some gender specificity. And by that, it's more of a result of normalizing for lean mass, right? So maybe if we, oh, fuck, maybe I can do that. I think I've got body compositions on all those individuals. Light bulb just went off. Oh, shit, I might have to listen to this podcast again, so maybe I'll remember my thought process here. But if I normalize for the uh, lean mass, right, that's what's the, the main differentiating factor. And then we mm -hmm. re redid the uh, trial, redid the uh, statistics on it. If we normalize for lean mass, then that should actually work for women if that equation popped. Mm. Yeah. I'll, I'm, I, I, whenever I get off here, I'm going to call Jerry Mayhew and because he's got all that raw data. He's got the force plate data. Mm -hmm. I'll have to, uh, yeah, I want to look into that. Uh, also, uh, along those lines, because whenever I was a uh, young strength coach, I remember being 22, 23, sitting there. And so this is kind of showing ignorance, too. Uh, back in the day, we got to remember, Tindo was the only thing for VBT. And honestly, mm -hmm. I would do VBT differently today. Uh, because, you know, sometimes you, you, things are a, as a result of the technology of the information that we have, right? Like think back to um, uh, fiber typing. Now, you, you probably won't realize this, but in, in 1997 and 98, whenever I was taking physiology, I was taught that a type 1 fiber can never become a type 2 fiber and a type 2 fiber can never be a type 1 fiber. Well, a lot of that was based on uh, the information that we had at hand, the methodology that what they were using to fiber type. Well, now through like electrophoresis, we realize that it's not just two fiber types, but there's a ton of them and it's a sliding scale. 
You know, we've got all these C's and two letter fiber types and mm. the letter order switches. XB's, yeah. Exactly. It's not XB because uh, it, X, uh, B is in uh, rats, X is in humans, okay. uh, where we've got that. But there are uh, XA, uh, AX, uh, et cetera. They, and that, shoot, that goes into, you know, with the technology too, because we used to call our fast switch fibers 2B until we realized that through better uh better microscopes, essentially, better methodologies that we, uh, you know, it's like, well, shit, this is different. These fibers don't look like each other. And then whenever they looked at the the electrophoresis, uh, it was like, oh, yeah, no, these are completely, you know, these are different fiber types mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have those things. So long story short, getting back to it, whenever I was uh, an, a, a GA, we did... Uh, under Gary Pankel, he was under Don James. So we're going to be doing the testing, multiple weeks of testing. And I'm sure that Nick Saban at least did this for a while. It probably went away under uh, Matt Ray and Dave Ballou. But, you know, where they were testing every week for five weeks. Well, whenever I'm looking there, I realize that people are changing weight every year. So the vertical jump shouldn't, you know, if it stay, if it continues to go up while they're putting masks on, that's huge. And so then I started putting, uh, I hooked some guys up to the Tendo. And uh, this is old school Tendo where you had to push the up, down and the left, right button at exactly the same time while standing on your left leg with your right leg, specifically at 30 degrees knee flexion, 42.7 degrees of abduction. And your tongue had to be out at just the right length and slightly to the right and for you to be able to change the weight. Right. Uh, which is facetious and long, but it, it was long. You would sit there literally for about 45 seconds trying to change a weight between guys. Mm -hmm. And then I found out about the Sarah's equation. And but either way, I was looking at power rather than jump height. And I didn't mm -hmm. know that I thought there had to be a way to do that for uh, for sprinting. And well, the Tendo cord was only 10 feet and a 40 is 120 feet. There ain't no fucking way I could. There's no way that I could have done that, man. I yeah. really need to get uh, more caffeine. So I have a better filter up right now. <laughs> um, that, uh, that, the, my, my language is, is atrocious today. Uh, but so I, I knew, knew that there's gotta be a better way and I just never let it go. Uh, I I'm one of those people that, you know, I, like I'd mentioned the rumination of stress, mm. I, I'm probably the world's worst. So I had this problem for, gosh, you know, like 14, 15 years before I figured out a solution. And the solution ended up being momentum. And uh, so the paper that we put out on that was looking at momentum instead of sprint velocity or sprint times as a marker adaptation over the years. Because mm. you look back at papers by Todd Miller, uh, mm. papers by Bert Jacobson. There's another paper at the University of Dayton. I can't remember the lead author. And then there's a fourth paper that popped up a couple of years ago all found that sprint times did not change over the course of a person's career, but body mass increased. Well, if I've got mass and I've got velocity, I can multiply those two things and that gives me momentum. Right. And I found that in a Dan Baker paper, uh, Dan Baker and Rob Newton, uh, whenever they were investigating the differences in uh, national team and regional team rugby players. And they found that momentum rather than speed is what, what mattered. And then I played it, uh, applied it to uh, a long-term athletic development model and saw that, yeah, you know what? The momentum is far more sensitive than velocity. Now, we're also working on coming out with, I just sent it over to Signorelli on Friday, um, 
we've had some, two doctoral defenses this week, so it's going to be going to be a bit. But uh, differences between positions, and there obviously are. You know, the skill positions are velocity dominant. The uh, so they've got the lowest momentum. The mm-hmm. big positions have got the largest momentum, and then the, the middle positions, of course, they're in the middle. Um, you've got to have a combination of both. And then the next paper that'll come out after that is going to be uh, starters and non-starters and the differences that exist within the positional groups there. And uh, so we're working on that. Um, And then I'm working on some, uh, and I don't know what's going to come of it, but uh, critical strength is what I'm referring to it as. Uh, The uh, amount of strength that transfers into uh, different activities, uh, such as counter-movement jump, sprinting, et cetera. You know, and change of direction. You know, how strong is strong enough? Mm. And uh, you know, we've got the theoreticals, uh, the stuff that exists from uh, Sukumel, uh, and Nymphius and Stone, and they're, uh, they're they're that's the authors. And I can't remember the title. They've got two or three papers in this line, but he's got that. Uh, what is that? Like a not a parabolic, but it's a like a sigmoidal curve, right? Mm. Kind of like an S-shaped curve. And uh, at 2.2 times body weight is where they they petered out. And I saw that for counter movement jump. But for me, um, I didn't see that for the sprints. It seemed mm-hmm. to be at about um, about 1.7, 1.8 is where the the speed changes started to die off. Uh, but I didn't investigate that towards momentum. And that's something that I need to go back and, and do because that very well might be far higher. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, so and, and critical strength for change of direction is going to be you know, in there. I'm looking at some different ways to evaluate that, which is part a, a fantastic thing about being in my role. Now, I've got uh, the biomechanists. I've got, you know, Joe Stignorelli, who is everything, uh, you know, engineers uh, that I work with here academically. And then I can ask them some questions uh, about the best way to evaluate things and then go over and do it with the athletes. And uh, and all, sometimes I have to battle with those individuals, though, because they re- they are looking for the greatest amount of precision that exists. Guess what? I'm not going to be able to marker up every single person on the soccer team to or football team to be able to go look at change of direction. Ain't going to happen. I got like 10 minutes. So working with them to find the uh, the the best methodology, I think, is is vital. Um, and I think that that's, uh, you know, that that's something that's pretty exciting coming down the pipe. And then we've also got some stuff on aging, um, looking at the use of the tonal uh, as uh, ability to uh, enhance uh, the training uh, for, you know, like these uh, activities of daily living for individuals versus a free weight stack. That's a program working on this summer. We're looking at some ballistic and EMG stuff with the uh, XPT rack, which is one that kind of uses some like handbrakes that mm-hmm. whenever you let go, the weight stops. So that might be a safe way to do ballistics and looking at the to make standing sure- machine with two free arms and the air pressure. Uh, no, it doesn't use air pressure at all. Uh, this actually is a, a rack kind of looks like a Smith machine. Yeah, uh, but it's got these little yellow handles that whenever you push in on those, uh, it releases a brake. And mm. it is like literally it's a piece of metal that sh- shifts out and sticks into a hole. Mm. Right. And uh, whenever you let go, that metal brake pops out and it stops the bar from coming back down. It's, uh, it's a pretty cool, simple device that um, I really like because of being able to do force velocity profiling. And that's another area that I'm, I'm doing some stuff in right now, mm. uh, both horizontal and, uh, and, and vertical. And um, nobody 
wants their athletes to land with 100%, 120% of their body weight on their back. I get that. So yeah. this is a way to be able to do that. They jump up in the air, they let go, then they land, and the weight stays up there. Or on the bench throw, I never did bench throws with anybody uh, before. And I didn't do bench throws with anybody because I trust no one. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of that has to do with my childhood, but, uh, you know, my inability to trust anybody to catch the bar, I've never done them, but with this mm -hmm. dude, you let go those pot things pop out and, uh, there's no way it's going to fall on you. So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, it's a, a very, very safe way to do uh, ballistic training. And, uh, so I'm going to, I'm using that rack to do some things. We've got to go make some adjustments to the rack, uh, that, that Brady had told me how to, to do. And uh, then I think we'll be able to get the research going. Right now, it, it hasn't started because I couldn't figure out how to uh, get people's natural technique to work with the rack that I'm using. Mm -hmm. And uh, we figured out he figured out a way to get me about an extra two inches of range of motion. So I think that's uh, that might be all we need to be able to get this sucker going. So a lot to look forward for. A lot is coming oh, out soon. Man, I'm I'm excited about the work <laughs> that we're doing here. And uh, and, and it. It never would have happened, you know. Sometimes, uh, and maybe I, I'll, I'll leave. You know, I know you've got to get going, and I've got shit I got to do too. But um, there's an old story about this farmer, right? That uh, it was a over in China or Japan or somewhere where, like, you know, the Zen Buddhism is, and uh, and his horse ran away, right? Or now his son broke his leg or something like that, and they're like, oh, how, what poor luck? And he's like, well, maybe yes, maybe no. Two days later, the military recruiters come by and are picking up people to go fight in the war. They don't take his son because he's got a broken leg. So was the broken leg a good thing or was it a bad thing? Maybe yes, maybe no. And they were like, mm -hmm. oh, what poor luck. Well, whenever I got let go at Missouri as a result of the uh, protests and the changes in leadership at the university uh, where they said, hey, if you are a uh, non-tenure track person, uh, you're at risk of being let go. And if you are not the center most important person in your department, you're at risk of being let go. Well, as a strength coach in a PT department, I was neither. Uh, so I was let go and I was very upset about it. Uh, I intended on being a lifer there and retiring. If for no other reason, I had a pension. So all I had to do was freaking hold on and then, you know, mm -hmm. save, save for what? I'm going to be getting money for the rest of my life. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I was so upset uh, that, you know, coming here, it was, uh, it, it, it was rough at first, but as much as I've learned, it forced me to grow. I didn't have these abilities whenever I was there. Now mm -hmm. I do. I left and I got the mentorship that I needed. So what seemed like a bad thing by being let go at that position, being nearly traumatized and wondering what had I done wrong with my life? I was the best thing in the world. I have grown exponentially since being forced out of my comfort zone and com uh, coming down here to the University of Miami. I'm a far better professional uh, as a result of it. And dare I say, I'm a better person for the experiences that I went through uh, in garnering that. Thanks for chatting with me for a little while. I know you got to clearly have a busy schedule. It means a lot. My pleasure. For those that made it this far, you know what we do at the end of the episode. We give you some words to live by. For anyone that knows me well, you've heard me say these words before. Nature doesn't hurry, yet everything is accomplished. See you next time, listeners, and thanks for joining me on the Book Strong Podcast.